I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 48, 1 through 22. Isaiah foresaw two major milestones in the salvation history of Israel. He foresaw their exile to and their rescue from Babylon. Comparing the rescue to a second exodus highlights its significance. The rescue from Babylon is just as important as that defining rescue from Egypt long ago. Isaiah describes the exile and rescue from three perspectives. He gives the Cyrus prophecy as a beginning perspective. We're looking at future things from the point of view of a prophecy given in Isaiah's present time. He then gives us a middle perspective of Israel's frustrated response to that plan and God's corresponding reassurance. That perspective covers the need for Israel to wait in faith from prophecy to fulfillment. Isaiah concludes with the ending perspective of fulfillment. That perspective comes in two parts, the fulfillment of Babylon's fall in chapter 47 and the matching fulfillment of Israel's deliverance in chapter 48. We considered Babylon's fall, her humiliation, hubris, and helplessness in our last lesson, Isaiah's language elevated the prophecy beyond the specific historic case of Babylon to include the general spiritual reality that we can refer to as the city of man. That sense of self-reliance and self-determination that was expressed as far back as the Tower of Babel continues through all human history to the last days envisioned by John in the book of Revelation. Turning from the fall of Babylon to the deliverance of Israel, we might expect a positive vision of Zion as the counter to the city of man. Unlike Babylon, God's people, his city, Zion, will be glorious, not humiliated, will be humble, not proud, will be empowered, not helpless. But that's not the picture we're about to receive. The people of Israel are not the representative people of God we would hope they would be. They do not provide a godly example to contrast Babylon's ungodly example. Motier divides the deliverance of Israel into two parallel halves. The first half, 48.1-11, emphasizes the Lord's past perseverance with Israel. And the second half, 48.12-22, emphasizes his future perseverance with Israel. We start with God's past perseverance. This is Isaiah 48.1-11. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is as an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. Therefore, I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you, so that you would not say, My idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard, look at all this, and you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago, and before today you will have not heard of them so that you will not say, Behold, I knew them. You have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago your ear has not been open. 
because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise, I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? God's past perseverance with Israel remains steadfast, not because of their faithfulness, but in spite of it. We pick up on the problem right away in verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts is his name. The people of Israel call themselves after the city Zion. They say, we are the people of God. They self-identify with Yahweh. They lean on him. Just as people in many nations today self-identify as Christians, culturally as Christians, but there's no life change that corresponds. There's not a witness to the Lord. They're not salt and light in the world. This people is not seeking the Lord's heart out of love and righteousness. Isaiah says they invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. A major reason for announcing his plans so far in advance is to provide a witness to this stiff-necked people to counter the religious frauds among them who claim to be his own. This is in verses 3 to 7. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass, because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is as iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. You know, you have a, a head that's made out of bronze. Nothing gets through. Talk about stiff neck. You're so stiff necked. It says iron sinew. Your muscles are iron. That's how obstinate you are. Verse 5. Therefore, I declared these things to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you so that you would not say, my idol has done them and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard, look at all this, and you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago, and before today you have not heard them, so that you will not say, behold, I knew them. God recognizes the stubborn heart of his people. He told them in advance what would happen. The initial, the positive point of that is so that they would become witnesses. They would embrace the prophecy and they would proclaim it. So that was the beginning of verse 6. You've heard this. Look at all this. And you, will you not declare it? Will you not declare this word? But instead of the prophecy being a witness that Israel embraces and speaks outwardly to the peoples, it becomes a witness against themselves. So that when these things happen, the ones who claim to be followers of Yahweh will not give credit to some idol they've turned to for help. This is a strong rebuke to the faithlessness among the people of God. God does not expect them to persevere in faithlessness. It's not enough to say I'm a Yahweh follower. It's not enough to say I'm a Christian. We have to ask deeper questions. What are we really trusting in? Where is our security? Where is our future? What idols have we relied on to provide safety and success? 
God gives us the truth of how he works so that we can rightly credit him for the blessings we receive in life. There are both old things and new things here. The Cyrus prophecy is the old thing. God foretold something specific and unimaginable. That truth is knowable. When it happens, there will be a clear correspondence from the actual event that traces back to the prophecy. Something known of old will come to be. There are also new things here. I see two kinds of new things. First, God did not give the exact time and place and manner in which he would use Cyrus to deliver. Those details will be newly revealed when they happen. Second, some truths only hinted at or not mentioned at all will accompany the fulfillment of the prophecy. That's another class of new thing, holy new revelation. Isaiah describes biblical prophecy as both declaring old things and as fulfilled with additional new things. Isaiah further explains how God's approach discredits two types of religious frauds. The first religious fraud claims identity with Yahweh, but has sought security through some other means. Without proof that God has indeed acted, they are going to give credit to their own efforts and their own sources, their own idols. God provides detailed prophecy in advance to counter that kind of fraud among his people. Verse 5, Therefore I declared them to you long ago, before they took place I proclaimed them to you, so that you would not say, My idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You can't give credit to your idol, to your education, to your military prowess, to your success in your vocation, to your relationships, to your family, to your traditional gods, to your horoscope, to your your own spiritual practices. Whatever the idol is that we're tempted to say, you know what really gave me security, what really gave me safety in my heart where I'm really giving credit? It's not Yahweh. It's this thing I did. It's this thing I understood. My idol has done them. My graven image, my molten image have commanded these things to be. The other kind of religious fraud finds nothing new or wondrous in the fulfillment of the prophecy. This fraud claims to have full knowledge in advance of what God will do. To counter the know-it-all, God holds back revelation of certain details or truths until the actual time of fulfillment. Those things will be revealed new. They weren't spoken of ahead of time. I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago, and before today you have not heard them, so that you will not say, Behold, I knew them. Isaiah is giving us here powerful insight into the nature of biblical prophecy. Prophecy is not given so that we can figure out all the exact times and details of future events. We're not meant to know everything. Prophecy is an aid to faith, not a replacement for faith. Prophecy counters the pride of the religious person who has found success through ritual or practice or knowledge apart from God. Prophecy also counters the pride of the religious person who claims to have it all figured out. Faith responds to prophecy with both confidence and dependence. Confidence in what God has clearly declared and dependence in the unknown. Trusting in God to bring about the fulfillment, even if it seems impossible. Faith is willing to wait and be surprised by how God's plan will unfold. 
when prophetic events do come true, we should not wonder as though the fulfillment of prophecy is a surprise. And at the same time, we should wonder at the exact nature of the fulfillment and at new revelation that accompanies the fulfillment. The writing on the wall at Belshazzar's feast should have astonished everybody. That's a twist that was not announced ahead of time. This is something new God added the night before Persia entered Babylon. It's a new thing unannounced. Cyrus' declaration to allow the Jews to return home after his conquest of Babylon should not cause great surprise. You know, there should be gratitude, but it's a detail that's expected. You know, some details will be new, but the release through a leader named Cyrus, that detail was defined. That's the old thing declared long before. Looking ahead to the end times and the return of Jesus, I question people who declare to know exactly what is going on in the world today in connection to the end times. You hear all kinds of stories of events that are happening in the Middle East. Modern prophets claim to understand it all. They understand the conflict in Russia and they'll point to Bible verses and they've got it all figured out. And they give they could give us charts on how these things are going to unfold. They say before the thing happens, behold, I knew them. I don't think they do know them. I think they're they're interpreting as they go, and some of it's going to come true, and some of it's not going to come true. I, I think it's mostly a fraud. When I read the Bible, these things are simply not clear. There will be revelation of new details and new truths that could not be known ahead of time. Things only God could imagine or do. We will be surprised. There, there are some things that should not surprise us. We should not be surprised that Israel was brought home again from Babylon because that was clearly foretold in Scripture. I think it was shocking that, that Israel was brought home again after World War II. And there's a, a third exodus. Um, there's the exodus from Egypt, the exodus from Babylon, and then after uh, Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, I mean, the Jews are out of Israel for almost 1,900 years, 1,850 years. But details in the prophecy, the, the broad picture, picture details require an Israel to be in Israel, a nation in the land. And so it, it, is, it is both shocking and yet not surprising. Like, oh, wow, yes, when it happens, it, it's in full accord with Scripture. There's something else I think might, it's going to shock us. We're going to be full of wonder, but we're not really going to be surprised is the coming of Jesus Christ. A consistent vision through the Gospels and into the book of Revelation is the vision of a son of man coming on the clouds and his appearance will be unmistakable. It will not be like the first coming of the son of man born as a baby in humble circumstances. It will be the triumphant coming of the son of man. This is something proclaimed of as old. Don't worry that you're going to miss the second coming of Jesus. When it happens, everybody's going to know. When it happens, you might be surprised at the timing. You will not be surprised at the fact that this is Jesus and he has returned. This is the son of man pictured in Daniel 7 with the ancient of days coming on the clouds to reign over the entire earth. It's the Son of Man coming on the clouds pictured in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation 1. This is an old thing announced repeatedly ahead of time. This is going to happen, and when it happens, you will see it and you will know. 
And we are supposed to be proclaiming it. We we are to embrace that word and be a witness to it. We don't want it to be a witness against us at our lack of faith. We want it to be uh, our joyful pronouncement ahead of time because we believe this is going to happen. We don't need to get into all the details of what we don't know is going to happen. We don't have to have it all figured out. We can wait in faith for some new details and new things to be revealed. But the thing that has been made clear Jesus is coming back to reign, that's not going to be a surprise. In that day, your faith in God as the one who fulfills his promises will be completely vindicated. God's perseverance with his people is for the great benefit of his people, but not ultimately centered in his people. God is God-centered, not human-centered, and he must be. Because he is the true center of all things. God is rightly concerned about the glorious display of his own nature as we should all be. We should all be concerned with the glorious display of of that which is most beautiful. That which is supremely good. That which is true. And that's God. God must be concerned with his own beauty and goodness and truth. Verse 8 You have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago your ear has not been open, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. The fulfillment of the promise doesn't depend on Israel. Verse 9, for the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? The goodness of God's people cannot be the reason that God saves. What we deserve is wrath. If there is to be mercy, it must come out of the goodness of God's nature, out of his faithfulness to his own word, and out of his gracious love towards sinful, broken people. He must act in accordance with who he is for his own sake and for his own glory. He cannot defame his own name. He must give honor to that which is supremely beautiful, true, and good. And in God's case, he is that which is supremely beautiful, true, and good. It is right for God to say, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. God's perseverance in his past faithfulness has been centered in the glory of his nature, who he is. That nature does not change. God will continue in future faithfulness to his promises. Verses 12 to 21 ensure God's future perseverance with Israel. We begin with the second half of our passage, just as we began with the first half, with an exhortation for Israel to listen. It's a call that has echoed out to Israel since the establishment of covenant with Moses. The word translated as hear in 48.1 and listen in 48.12 is Shema. The Jewish prayer called the Shema is repeated by Jews every day in morning and evening prayers. The name of the prayer is taken from the first word of the prayer, which starts with Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Moses called Israel to hear, to listen, 
Isaiah calls Israel to hear, to listen. Verses 12 to 22. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him and he will make his ways successful. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, declare the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. In spite of their obstinacy, they are still the Israel that God has called. The here in verses 1 and 2 was followed by a description of faithless Israel. The here in verses 12 and 13 is followed with a description of faithful God. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand together. The verb hear or listen in verse 12 is singular, directed at the personified nation Israel. The call to listen in scripture always assumes not only hearing of God's word, but also obedience to God's word. That's the kind of listening expected. In this case, Israel is to submit to the reality of God's nature as sovereign over the whole creation. A second commandment to listen is issued in verses 14 to 15. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him and will make his ways successful. The verb listen is plural this time, calling on every individual member of the nation. So the first listen was to the whole group. The second listen is to every member of the group. Listen and embrace this truth. First, Yahweh is sovereign Lord over creation. Uh, second, Yahweh is sovereign Lord over history. He has declared something that is going to happen, and he is going to carry out his good pleasure. God will raise up a leader who will defeat Babylon. God has spoken. He is Lord of history. It will be. Listen to this. Embrace it. Live by it. A third command to listen is given in verse 16. This one is also plural, directed again at all the individuals who make up the nation Israel. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. The first three verse sets in this verse communicate a fairly clear meaning. The last two verse sets are a bit confusing. 
Let's start with the first three verse sets. The first is the call to listen. So listen to this. The second is a declaration that God has not spoken in secret. This is a consistent biblical theme. God's words are not mystical, opaque, obscure, unknowable. I mean, some are, but but the great majority is not. God speaks with plain, real-life language in order that his people, if they will pay attention to what he's saying, they can understand it. Sometimes he doesn't give us all the information we want, but if we don't concentrate on what God has not said and concentrate on what God has said, we can understand a great part of it. God doesn't speak in secret. We understand Israel will be defeated and exiled to Babylon. A man named Cyrus will come to power and defeat Babylon. Israel will be freed and return to rebuild Jerusalem. None of that is secret, mystical, symbolic language. Then in the third verse set, God declares, from the time it took place, I was there. God spoke at some earlier time. He didn't keep the thing a secret. And later, God was present. He was there when his spoken word came true. I spoke it, and then I was there to carry it out. God perseveres in faithfulness to see his promises realized. Now we come to the two verse sets of 16b. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. God does not speak in secret, but there are times when his words are not so easy to interpret. And the question here is, who said that? Who's speaking? God spoke in 16a. That was clear. But 16b claims, the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Who's saying that? Like It could be Cyrus speaking. God has sent me. Oswald and Motier provide two better options. Oswald thinks this is the prophet Isaiah speaking. 16a tells us that God has spoken. And in 16b, the prophet claims that the words he writes are those words that God has spoken. He has been sent by the Lord God with a message and by his spirit. That would fit well with Isaiah's call described back in 6-9 where God commissions Isaiah, go and tell this people. Motier, on the other hand, understands this verset as pointing ahead to the true servant who takes center stage in chapters 49 and 55. The prophecy of God is both unsurprising and surprising. He will set Israel free through Cyrus, but he will do more than that. Something new is coming that wasn't made fully clear ahead of time. A different kind of servant sent from God the Father and by the Holy Spirit. That servant is the one speaking here, foreshadowing the three servant songs to come. Either interpretation, the prophet or the servant, could work here. The rest of the section describes the journey of Israel out from Babylon through the wilderness back to the promised land. God remains faithful, and yet the faithlessness of his people still strikes a discordant note. Verses 17 to 22. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their names would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. The positive declaration of the Lord as Redeemer in verse 17 
sets up expectation of triumph. God will lead his people out of Babylon in the way they should go. Verses 18 and 19 throw cold water on the declaration. God cannot help but remind Israel of her past failure. If only they had been faithful to the covenant, well-being and righteousness would overflow like a river. Their descendants would be abundant, their name blessed. After that reminder of past failure, God orders Israel to set out from Babylon. They are to proceed with joy. They are to give witness to God who has redeemed them. The language of verse 21 casts this redemption as a new exodus. As with that long ago generation led by Moses, God will provide for this generation water from a rock on the long journey home. We conclude with the single verse said in 22, there is no peace for the wicked. That feels to me like an odd conclusion to the buildup created by the three versets of 21. It seems jarring and out of place. They did not thirst when he led them through the desert. How so? How does the nation go through the desert without thirst? He made water flow out of the rock for them. Let's elevate that language. Water didn't just flow out from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. You know, each verset builds. What does it build to? There's no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Who are the wicked? Surely the Babylonians, or more generally, any enemy that stands against God declaring to his face, I am and there is no one beside me. The city of man, they are the wicked. For them there will be no peace. That's true, but it's not the point being made here. Let's go back to verse 18. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. That's not God unable to get over Israel's past. It's not that God couldn't help just throwing in something negative. That's a reminder of a consistent pattern through the entire duration of Israel's history, beginning not only with Moses, but stretching all the way back to Abraham. And we're supposed to think back that far. The language of verse 19 is the language of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Your descendants would have been like sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. God's promise would have come true for Israel if Israel had paid attention to the commands of God. But from the start of biblical history, we see in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob an inability to persevere in faithfulness to God. The first generation out of Egypt exemplified the inability of human beings to persevere in good relationship with God. They just could not remain faithful. They could not enter the land, and they could not keep from complaining and resisting through the entire 40 years of their wilderness wandering. God provided the manna and the water. God was faithful, but his people complained and rebelled. The great theological climax of the book of Exodus is not the redemption of Israel and the destruction of Egypt in the Red Sea. That's what we want the climax to be, the destruction of the outward enemy. But how to save Israel from mighty Egypt is not the primary problem. The primary problem of the Exodus is pictured in the burning bush. How can fire remain on a dry bush without consuming it? How can a holy God live with a sinful people without burning them up? Exodus 33, 5, For the Lord has said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Fire burns the bush. This is the persistent problem of humankind. Whatever people God saves, those people are their own enemy. Solve the problems of oppression, poverty, education, drought, whatever. All those real problems, 
and you still have the problem of the human heart. Take them out of Egypt and they bring Egypt with them. The old covenant history of Israel has not solved the problem. 800 years after Egypt, the people brought out of Babylon are going to be no different. They have been tested, purified in the fire, but it doesn't solve the problem in the heart. We always bring the enemy into the camp with us. Our deepest problem is the sin in our own heart. So verse 18 again, God did not point out the past covenant failure of Israel just to make them feel bad or to hold them under judgment. God pointed out the past failure of Israel to highlight the ongoing problem of the future. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. That's so true. If only we could pay attention to God's commandments. If only we could persevere in faithfulness to his word, then our well-being would be like a river. The word translated well-being here is the Hebrew word shalom. It is the same word for peace as in verse 22. There will be no shalom for the wicked. Emotional, psychological, and material well-being are all connected to our spiritual well-being. We cannot be whole and secure and growing if at the very center of our soul we are at war with God. Unless he becomes the center of life. Unless we begin to seek first after his glory and his goodness and his beauty and his truth. There can be no lasting peace for the wicked. And that's not only true for those in outright rebellion outside the camp. It's true for every human being, including every human being claiming to belong to God. National redemption doesn't fix the problem of the human soul. For God to create for himself a people that are truly his who will truly seek him with heart, soul, and mind, it's not enough to rescue Israel and take them home. The great deliverance must be followed by a greater deliverance. That's where Isaiah will take us next in chapters 49 to 55. We've arrived at the heart of Isaiah's gospel. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the book of Acts.